0: Okay, everybody waving. Thank you. Um, I also want to take a picture of this big screen here because this has got a sermon timer on it, so this is this is telling me that I 've already used up thirty seconds of my preaching time. So there you go. Well, it is uh, it 's good to be back in my homeland. What? Oh, that was for Grandma. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, this chapter, or kind of half of one and half of the other in 2 Corinthians, in two ways. Uh, We're going to use a wide-angle lens, and we're going to use a telescopic lens. Uh, Now, we've moved recently. We we kind of spent the last 28 years in Canberra. And as all of our kids have left home, and uh, some of them have had grandkids for us... uh, They've moved up to the mid-north coast uh, of New South Wales, uh, a place called Port Macquarie. Um, It's supposed to be the most temperate climate in Australia. Uh, It's pretty good. Uh, We were walking on the beach last week in thongs and T-shirts and shorts uh, in the middle of winter. And uh, we live in a house that's just up the hill uh, at the back of this beach. Uh, The place is called Bonnie Hills. And when we get up in the morning, we can kind of go out onto a veranda And we can see the ocean uh, for a huge amount of distance. And as you scan across the ocean, uh, you can look for whales. And uh, every now and then, through the winter, we've discovered uh, you'll see whales. You might not see the actual whale, but you'll just see a spray. That's a wide-angle look. But if we want to zoom in and identify what it is that's caused the spray, we need to use a telescope or binoculars. In fact uh, when we were coming from Australia yesterday we stopped in at the duty free and we bought ourselves a set of binoculars so we can zoom in and identify the whale Uh, and uh, it's a really beautiful thing to be able to do that. Now you need both a wide angle and a telescopic angle when it comes to reading the Bible. Uh, You need the big picture, Uh, you need to realise that Uh, a little story, like say, let's take one of my favourites when I was growing up, David and Goliath, right? You know, the the little bloke, the handsome, rugged, young shepherd called David, uh, who slays the the giant called Goliath. Uh, That's a part of a much bigger story. And as I was growing up, and I went to church pretty much every week, uh, I had no idea that David and Noah and Abraham and Jesus, and Paul, and a whole bunch of other people had anything to do with each other. Now, it wasn't until uh, my third year at university that I came to realise that the Bible held together as a single unit. Now, there are 66 books in the Bible, 39 and 27, that make up the Bible, but they are part of one book... Not just because it's bound uh, in in one uh, binding, not because the word Bible actually means book, but because there is one overarching story from God. History is literally his story. It's the story of God. God's world from the very beginning on into eternity. Now, how do you make sense of that story? And what I came to realise in that third year at university was that a verse in this passage held the key. And so what I want to do now is to take the wide angle on this passage and then to take the telescopic angle and look at, at one or two verses and show how they provide this key. And that key of course is Jesus. So let's have a look then at the wide angle to begin with. Now it's a little bit hard to know exactly why Paul, the Apostle, writes the things that he does in this chapter. And the reason it's a little bit difficult for us is because it's a bit like being a passenger in a car when somebody else is on the phone. Um, you hear what they're saying, but you can't hear, unless it's on speaker, what the other person is saying. But, but you can pick up enough through one side of the conversation to have a pretty good idea what was going on from the other side. Now it's a bit like that with a letter right and what we've got is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to a church in a city called Corinth. Now you had a bit of background of that last week uh, as Rowan opened up chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians and what we see is that there's been some kind of conflict in the background. Uh, Paul is not being treated well by the Corinthians. They're making judgments about him they're not only judging his actions, but they're judging his motives, uh, his, his words, as well as his thoughts. And Paul writes in a kind of defense. Uh, a defense, it seems, at first, of himself, but we'll see it's actually much more profound. So we've got Paul here kind of under attack. Um, and you can see that if you were to jump forward to, say, chapter 7. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. You're you're going to be picking this up, I think, more and more as you work through the book. But if you come to chapter 7 and verse 2, look at the way he writes to them. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. Make room for us in your hearts. Now, that's that's a heavy thing for him to be saying because it implies that they've turned their back against him. It implies that they no longer give special place to the Apostle Paul. He had spent a year and a half with them. You can read this in Acts chapter 18, teaching them from the scriptures. Paul had, had come into their town, their city. He'd been sharing the good news of Christ crucified. He'd invested his life for at least a year and a half in seeing people become Christians. Paul had continued to follow them up. And so we've got another letter, haven't we? 1 Corinthians, where he wrote to them because he was keen that they stay the course, that they actually hang on to the gospel, that they're not distracted by other things, that they live it out in their lives. Paul has shown great commitment to them. And now it seems that he's got to defend himself yet again. So Paul writes to these people. And how does he respond to their criticism? Well, there's a number of things we see here. First of all, that his conscience is clear. You can see it there in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. See, the issue it seems to be that they're concerned about is that Paul had said he would visit them. In fact, he said he'd visit them more than once, but he didn't bother turning up. He wants to say that rather than this indicating that he's selfish, two-faced, fickle, doesn't care about them, that he's only there for himself, his conscience is in fact clear before God. He defends himself. In fact, he goes on to say, not only is his conscience clear, but the way he's made decisions is for their sake. So, verse fifteen: In this confidence, I plan to come to you first, so that you could have a double benefit, and to go on to Macedonia with your help, and then to come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you on my journey to Judea. So, when I planned this, was I irresponsible, or? What I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes and no, no in the same breath? No, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. They might believe that he's not concerned for them, that he's disinterested in them, that he just says what's going to kind of keep the peace and make them happy and he doesn't intend to do anything about it. But that's not the case. He argues that he has their interests at heart. He wanted to go to them. That was genuine. He wanted to go to them twice. That was the truth. But he had made plans not to. Why? Come down to verse 23. He says, I call on God as my witness against me. He says, I call on God as a witness against me. It was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. Not that we have control of your faith, but we're working with you for your joy, because you stand by faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this, not to come to you on another painful visit. He intended to go, he was going to go twice, but he's changed his mind. Why? Well, you know that he's committed to them, because he wants them to be standing firm in their faith at the end but he's made up his mind not to go so as to spare them another painful visit now clearly he's talking about a previous visit where where things were incredibly difficult maybe he had to speak strong words to them maybe he had to actually criticize the way that they were living the way that they were treating each other what they were involved in what they were doing and rather than turn up in their face and present these things again he chooses to spare them another painful visit. Read on a little bit further, down to our uh, verse 4. For out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. See, Paul chose, instead of visiting them, to write another letter. He chose to write to them, out of tears and anguish he's concerned for them he's troubled by them he wants them to be standing firm for eternity and he decides that the best thing for him to do at this point is not to turn up face to face but to give them this letter that they might reflect on these things and change paul's defending himself yes but why Why is Paul going to such lengths to defend himself before these people? Well, see, there's a much bigger issue than a fragile relationship. There's something far more important here than just some kind of conflict between them. You see, the issue is that Paul brought the gospel to them. And he did that as an ambassador from God. He came with God's message of reconciliation. Paul came with a message of the gospel of Jesus. A message of hope and forgiveness of life and eternity. And now they're criticising Paul. You see, when you criticise the ambassador, you're actually criticising the one who sends the ambassador. And Paul is desperately concerned that they... however they might treat him, that they don't turn their back upon God. He's not fundamentally defending himself, friends. Look look at the way he writes. Um, I'll pick it up again at verse 17. So when I planned this, was I irresponsible or what do I plan? Do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no simultaneously? As God is faithful, he says, our message to you is not yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, yes has come about in him. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Paul's deep concern is not that they will see that he's trustworthy and that he's faithful, so much as they will see that God is trustworthy that God is faithful. You see, there's a great danger when a person comes bringing a message of of truth, a message that lays a claim on people's lives if it's not backed up by the way that they live. And you see that, don't you? you? You see criticism of Christians again and again. You see... Criticism of major leading Christian figures who fall by the wayside through immorality, through fraud, through greed, through a whole range of different things. And the real problem is that it actually reflects very badly back on the God who gives them the message to proclaim. See, I don't know anything much about New Zealand, but I, I, I know in Australia there's a great cynicism towards the church. There's a rejection of people who live differently than they speak. And one of the absolute horrors of the Christian church's history over the last few decades in Australia has now been brought out into the public sphere through a royal commission, showing again and again and again, And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of children have been abused at the hands of the church, at the hands of priests, at the hands of church leaders, ministers, even bishops. See, the real damage that Paul's concerned about is not his reputation, but God's reputation. Paul's concerned that they not turn their back upon Jesus upon the message of salvation and so he's making point to say look i wasn't acting immorally i wasn't acting selfishly i'm I'm not a fickle two-faced double-minded person no I, i know that i changed my mind but i did it for your sake and as god is faithful keeping every one of his promises so i seek to serve god Well, friends, that's the wide angle. What what response does this call from us? I think quite simply, there's a number of important things that we see here. The first is that the Apostle Paul wants them to know that God is faithful. I take it, therefore, he wants us to know that God is faithful. He wants us to be able to trust God, to know that God is a God who keeps his promises And if you want to know that God keeps his promises, then look to Jesus. Every promise God has made finds its yes in Jesus Christ. All those prophecies of the Old Testament, no more than that. Everything that God has spoken finds its fulfillment in Jesus. God keeps his promise. Way back in the garden when the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God and God brought his curse upon them, what he said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 was that the descendant of the woman would crush the serpent's head. There's your original good news, gospel from God. He's kept that promise. What does it say? It says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. God's promise to Abraham that he'd create a great people enjoying great blessing in, in the place where God dwells. Well, you see that in Jesus. God amongst us, dwelling amongst us. As you get to the book of Revelation and you see this wonderful picture of a new creation, a new heavens and earth. There is the garden, greater than it could ever be. And there are God's people enjoying God's blessing, all because of Jesus. God is a God who keeps his promise. And and let me encourage you with this. If you look to your circumstances to work out whether God is faithful, if you look to how things are going in your life to know whether God loves you, you'll be like that little child who's picking the leaves off daisies. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not because the circumstances of life are going to send you backwards and forwards like a pendulum. So I stand before you as somebody who may well be cured of of an incurable cancer and I say, he loves me. What do I say on the day of diagnosis? He loves me not. What do I say if the next scan shows evidence of, of cancer progression? He loves me not. No friends, The place to look for evidence for God's love is not in the circumstances of your life. It's not whether Paul turns up when he said he was coming or he doesn't turn up. No, it's to look to God keeping every promise he's ever made in Jesus. That's where you look. And not only that, but but we need to realize that the devil is at work in these things as well. Because the devil loves you. To doubt the promises of God. How do you know that? We'll go back to Genesis chapter 3. What's the serpent say? Did God really say? Oh, God knows that if you do this, then this will happen. Kind of deceptive, isn't it? Doubt the promises of God. It's always been his way. And I think it continues to be his way. And Paul is at great pains to encourage them not to give in to the devil's schemes. Look at what he says in verse 7 uh, of, of chapter 2. Have I got the right verse? I can't see it on my page. Probably not. <laughs> um, what's that? 11? Eleven? Eleven. 11. Oh yeah, I've got an 11. Sorry. I'll read from verse 10. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Paul writes to the Corinthians who are a church divided... They, they, they had conflict like you wouldn't believe. You've looked as a church, some of you might not have been around, I understand, back at 1 Corinthians. Um, what does that talk about? Some saying, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Cephas. Others say, I follow uh, Apollos. Some super spiros say, oh, I just follow Jesus. And they say that to divide from those who just follow Apollos or those who follow Paul. They're divided. Conflict. The devil goes, yep, that's good. He loves division. He loves the conflict between the Corinthians and the apostle who brought the gospel to them. I mean, he loves them to be thinking, Paul, I'm not sure you can trust him. I mean, surely if he wasn't going to turn up, he could have let us know, like a simple text or Snapchat would have done. But no. See, the devil loves seeding doubt. He, he, he loves causing us to think, well, maybe God doesn't love me. So don't look at your circumstances. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. Look at God keeping every promise he's ever made. Notice also the Paul, for all of the, the horrors of this church in Corinth, has never given up on them. I mean, he brought the gospel to them in the first place. And he continues to care deeply about them, such that in verse 4, he says that I wrote to you even with tears in anguish, out of a troubled heart. He doesn't give up on these people. They're a basket case, basically. And you think it would have been so much easier to say, look, you know, I'll just hang out with the Philippians. <laughs> they bring me great joy. Not like you guys, but he doesn't. He wants to share eternity with the Corinthians. He has a passion for people that leads him to stay with them. To continue with them. Even to be prepared for fierce conversations. For hard words. For dealing with them in a manner which might threaten their relationship. Because he cares about them for eternity. And of course, it's an eternal perspective, isn't it? What drives the Apostle Paul is the honour and the glory of God and the eternal salvation of these people. Friends... We need to keep an eternal perspective. We we need to to tune in to what God's doing. And we need to not be deceived by the devil's schemes. And that means we need to give attention to one another. We we need to be forgiving of one another. It's interesting, isn't it? That um, of the things that Jesus had to say, I think one of the most difficult is, if you refuse to forgive others... God will not forgive you. That's a hard teaching, isn't it? But it's so important, so important, because we display the reality of our forgiveness by God in a willingness to forgive those who have wronged us. And so Paul reminds them, and so Paul encourages their forgiveness. I've skipped over that bit, but he, he encourages them to forgive a guy that was a troublemaker in their midst. Forgiveness is so important. And I, I wonder, like, I think one of the things about, about growing old, right, and I'm going to do that sometime, is that we get harder and harder in our attitudes. And I've seen it in people. Uh, older than me just seem to find it more and more difficult to forgive not easier we don't don't soften as we as we go on through life so often we harden and it's a great danger so I want to say to you now if, if there are people that you can identify just thinking right now that you've not forgiven if there are people that you think if they were sitting in church I'd go and sit somewhere else if there's a conflict that's unresolved Please ask God to help you to deal with that. Now, it may not be possible to reconcile. Uh, And the scriptures tell us to be at peace with all people, so long as it depends upon you. You might not be able to achieve peace, reconciliation. But what you can do is have a heart that is willing to forgive. And you might need to ask God to to shape and mould your heart to be able to do that. I know that people can, can cause incredible harm to others. I, uh, I have a book at home called Forgiving Hitler. Somebody who'd come to Christ needing to learn to forgive a monster like Adolf Hitler. You see, that's what the gospel does. That's what the work of God's Spirit can pull off. Why don't you pray that God will help you? Well, friends, we've been looking at the wide angle. How about now we we zoom in, we pull out the telescope, and we look closely at at a couple of verses that show us our promise-keeping God. First of those is in uh, chapter 2 and verse 20. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Every one of God's promises is yes in him. See, God has kept all his promises in his son, Jesus. Everything, the whole Old Testament, leading to Jesus. Uh, other verses say the same thing. Uh, Jesus says that he hasn't, he, he hasn't come to do away with the, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them in, cha- in Matthew chapter 5. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 says that in the past God spoke uh, to our forefathers in in many and various ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken by his son, who is the complete, perfect image of God, the the full expression of God. Jesus, after he'd been raised from the dead, he's he's walking down the road to Emmaus with with two of of his followers. They don't recognize him immediately. And he opens up the Old Testament scriptures to them. And he shows them how they point to Jesus, to himself. And then a little later, he points out how the law, the prophets and the Psalms, how they say that the son of man, that he must suffer and be killed and rise from the dead. So all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that has big implications. Let me show you some of them. One of the implications is, if, if I was to preach a sermon uh, just mentioning the Old Testament and no reference to Jesus, w- with Jewish people and Muslim people who recognise those scriptures and they're saying, good message, well done, then every likelihood is I've not got it right. I've left people hanging, I've not shown how it all points towards Jesus... It's a little bit like watching um, a a long series of TV shows uh, and being content to not watch the last episode. You think, how could you possibly do that? Well, I was forced to. Uh, We used to have this thing called Foxtel uh, and we watched every episode, we thought, of Newsroom until Foxtel put it on a different station and we didn't have that station. So for two years, I didn't know how the whole series finished. If I'd got up and told you what newsroom was about, I wouldn't have got it right. I would have got it wrong. And then one day, two years later, I'm sitting in a friend's lounge room and I see the box set. All volumes of Newsroom. And so I say, can we watch the last episode? He says, hey, we've got time. Why don't we watch the second last and the last episode to put it back in context? And when you're a Bible reader, friends, context is very important. Okay? <laughs> and it all made sense. I now understood that magnificent scene in the start of the first episode. It now all made sense. And friends, you cannot understand the Bible without Jesus. You just can't. Because God's been pointing to Jesus the whole time. And everything that's come since him flows from him. You won't make sense of it without Jesus. Just about every major heresy or sect related to Christianity that gets it wrong gets it wrong because they fail to see that every promise God has made has been declared to be yes in Jesus. It's also got massive implications for our lives because if Jesus is the centre of his story, history, God's history, then Jesus ought to be at the very centre of our lives. And if Jesus is not at the centre of your life if you're dipping in and kind of exploring what this Christian thing is all about, if you're wondering what the key really is, then get along to explaining Christianity because it talks about Jesus. Jesus is the key to the Christian faith. He's the key to your life. Do you know that, that God made you for a purpose? You know what that purpose is? It's the same for every one of us. We were made for Jesus. We were made for Jesus, to have a relationship with Jesus as, as the boss of our life, because he's the boss of the universe. He may as well be in control of our lives. And, and when he becomes in control of our life, then we get brought back into the people that we were created to be. And we can put our trust in him, because not only is he the, the, the ruler of the universe, he's, he's the one who came as a human being and sacrificed his life for us. For the forgiveness of our sins so you can have a relationship with God that will last for eternity because of Jesus is Jesus central for you the second thing that we see here um, again talking about God's faithfulness come down to verse 22 Uh, he says there uh, I'll read I'll read on from from 20 For every one of God's promises is yes in him, therefore the Amen, it's an Aramaic word, just means truly, is also through him for God's glory through us. Now the one who confirms us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. He has also sealed us and given us the Spirit as a down payment in our hearts. Do you want, you, you want to have confidence in eternity that, that God has everything sorted for you? Well, for those who trust in Jesus, God has given you a reason for confidence. Yes, first up, he's kept every promise in Jesus. Second up, he has made a down payment on your future already. He's actually given you his Holy Spirit to dwell in you, that you might have... The deposit, if you like the 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 beginnings of the guarantee of what 's to come because God has given you his spirit now we've we 've made a number of significant purchases in our life, uh, probably one of the most significant ones uh, is to is to actually start buying the home that we now live in, and in order to be able to buy that home we had to sign a contract and within a certain period of time we had to put down a deposit 10% now we're talking about a home that costs a lot of money and we had to pay 10% of a lot of money (laughs) in order to be able to guarantee that we would receive this home and then we were committed to the future friends god hasn 't given us a lot of money he 's given us even better himself, his spirit, dwelling in us as a down payment on heaven, on eternity with God. Are you tempted to doubt god 's faithfulness, his trustworthiness i 'd be surprised if you 're not we We sang a song this morning at i don 't know if you 're going to sing it here. But it actually, it picks up on some words from Mark's gospel uh, where Jesus asks somebody if they believe. And he says, I do believe, please help my unbelief. And the song actually picks it up. And I feel like that. I imagine that many of you feel like that. But friends, in our unbelief, in our doubts, in our struggles in the temptations that we face to to base our confidence in God on our circumstances, let's heed his word. Let's look to the one absolute convincing proof that God loves us. For God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That for every promise God has made, he has answered it as yes in Jesus Christ. That the future is so secure that God has sent his only spirit into our lives as a down payment on our future. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to what's going on around about you. Look to the word of God. Let's pray. A loving Father, we, we pray that you will help us to look to you Help us to understand that uh, we're going to be tossed around in this life, that things will go well, things won't go so well, uh, that it'll, be, it'll seem really clear that uh, you're at work, that you're doing good things, and then at times it'll seem like you're just so far away, remote and uncaring. And in, in the same way that, that they misjudged the Apostle Paul in the church in Corinth, we know that we can misjudge you And so we pray that you'll point us to the truth again and again and again. And every time we're tempted to doubt you, every time we struggle in unbelief, remind us of your faithfulness in Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.